Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. All right, welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined this week by a very, very special guest. It is my co-founder of Risk Versal Media. He is my co-host of On The Tape podcast that drops every Friday morning in your favorite podcast store. His name is Guy Adami. Guy, how are you, bud? I'm so, you know, when you said you had a special guest, I got all excited. <laughs> then you said it's me, so it was a bit of a letdown. I'm sure the fans feel the same way, but I'm bringing it here, Dan. No, you are. I mean, listen, we have not covered public tech on OK Computer in, in a few weeks here. We've had a lot of great guests, more focused on the public markets. Um, but, you know, what's going on, Guy, over the last, call it, you know, week or so is really interesting as it relates to the NASDAQ. You know, the S&P and the NASDAQ have had big rallies off of the lows in mid-October. They both made new 52-week lows. The S&P 500 at its highs just last week was up about 17.5% off those mid-October lows. The NASDAQ guy, though, surprisingly, okay, is only up 14.5% and has since given back about 4.5% of that. So there's been relative underperformance by the NASDAQ. And again, it's important to recognize the NASDAQ is the index that has nearly doubled the performance to the downside of that in the S&P. As I look right now, it's down about 29% versus the S&P down about 16.5%. That's on the year. What's going on here? I love that you use the word surprisingly because that's exactly right. And obviously, if you're surprised by something, there needs to be a reason behind that surprise. And I would submit, given the fact that 10-year yields have gone from 4.3%, and we're pretty much approaching now 3.5% in the 10-year. And if you had said to me under those set of circumstances, on a market, by the way, to your point, that has rallied in the S&P since October 13th, 14th, that Thursday and Friday, some 17%. What are these uh, high valuation, high growth NASDAQ stocks going to do? And I said they're going to rally fiercely, much more than the broader market and much more obviously than they have. And I think it's fascinating the fact that these names, despite the fact that yields have come down so precipitously, basically can't get out of their own way. And as we sit here right now, Salesforce.com, which you know, in a lot of ways, is a poster child for high growth, high valuation, in the right spot, great management team. That stock's not only making a new 52-week low, Dan. I think that's the low that stock has seen since the spring of 2020. And that, I think, is telling you something. Again, does it mean the market's going to crash? No. I, I don't think that's either one of our points, but it's definitely something to take notice of. Well, we're going to get into the Salesforce in a little bit because you said great management team. And I think you meant to do that in a past tense because there's been a bloodletting of some of those senior executives. But we'll hit that in a couple minutes here. You know, one of the things, Guy, it's interesting about the timing of the rally 
from mid-October, we caught a bit of Q3 earnings, right? And, and you know, we've talked about this a lot on, on the tape and on Fast Money. I mean, when you think of the five largest stocks in the market, not just the S&P, obviously the NASDAQ, it's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Amazon, it's Google, it's Tesla. Those five stocks make up nearly 25% of the weight in the S&P and nearly 40% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100. What do all of those companies have in common as far as their Q3 earnings? They all guided down for Q4. So is in that time period. So the market continued to rally despite the fact that we had guide downs of all five. And when you think about that, and we've talked about this, man, throughout our, our careers, these are not usually one quarter events, especially when you have the Fed hiking into a slowing economy. I mean, this could be kind of the tip of the iceberg. And I guess when you think about that outperformance in the S&P 500, we saw a rotation into value, right, out of higher price growth. And I think that's defensive positioning for what might come in 2023, which would be a stagflationary environment with a recession in there. And again, what are you willing to pay? Even when rates are coming down here, what are you willing to pay for stagnant growth that is on a relative basis very high on a valuation front? A lot to dissect there. So let's just break it down real quick. And you're right. It's not typically just a one quarter event, but we've become this market, this society that needs instant gratification. And we think somehow these companies, these cycles can end a lot sooner. And I would submit, yes, things don't take as long as they did five or 10 years ago, without question. These used to be 18 to 24 month cycles that you'd have to live through. So maybe that's not 18 months anymore, but it certainly still should be north of a year. And we're sort of in the early stages of all of this, to your point about these companies guiding lower. And they all guided lower. And for Apple to guide lower and then subsequently see the stock go from $138, which it touched right after they reported earnings, north of $150 in the subsequent weeks. And now here we are back in the mid-140s. The market, I don't think, is fully accounting for that. And to your point about what is the right valuation, I mean, that's really for market participants to decide. But what I'll tell you is you know, a 15 multiple on probably somewhere between 205 and $215 of S&P earnings, potentially lower, quite frankly, in this environment, gets you an S&P that's significantly lower than we are now. And it's not that we're all doom and gloom all the time. And it's interesting because I heard some commentators today saying, I've never heard such pessimism and negativity. It's not negativity. It's just reading the tea leaves. You know, these same people, when everything is euphoric, they never say, I've never heard such euphoria or such optimism. They don't talk that way because when things are going higher, it's seemingly normal. Well, as the book says, Dan, the sun also sets. That's a fact. Let's talk about Apple for a second here again, because this stock has outperformed many of its mega cap peers. It's down a little less than 20% on the year. And just to put that in some context, you know, Amazon is down 47%. Microsoft is down 26%. Google is down 33%. So we have some stocks, they are in crash mode and, and Apple just feels like it's in correction mode. And when you think about it as the largest market cap company in the world, it's only expected to grow earnings and sales for the current current fiscal year, we are in fiscal Q1 guy, um, only expected to have low single digits earnings and sales growth with margins basically flat. Now, here's the thing. Here's the news peg. And I want to get your take on this. So over the weekend, we heard that Apple is moving more iPhone production out of China. We know that they've had lots of issues with protests at Foxconn factories 
in China. And I think it's important to also understand that Tim Cook, while everyone agrees he's a fantastic CEO, he's not a product guy. His vision for this company was about logistics and supply chain and, and really for it turning into the company that it has become here. But if you have to dismantle the last 20 years of the work that he has done, right, and, and charged with this whole plan about making a global product that has iPhone cities in China, where all of their supply chain is oriented to that. And you want to move that to India. You want to move it to Vietnam. You want to bring some jobs back to the U.S. That is definitely going to put a wrinkle. Those 43% gross margins that have been kind of stagnant here, and they take, what, 80 90% of the gross margin in the entire smartphone industry at a time where we know that sales are plateauing a little bit and their products are becoming a bit more iterative. Guy, is 23 times that expected growth given the fact that we're likely to see margin pressure going forward. Does that make any sense right here? No. And, you know, again, if you were an attorney, I'd say you're leading the witness, Your Honor, and and, you'd, and, and I'd be correct. But you happen to be right as well. It doesn't matter. Everything you've outlined is correct. And I've said it for a long time, and, I, and we play this game. If you didn't know the name of the company, and I just outlined exactly what you just said, low mid single digit CPS growth, low mid single digits revenue growth, declining margins. And by the way, their cash position is probably the lowest it's been in five or six years. You look at all those things, and again, a slowing down economy with a company that has to move supply chains, which it's not like moving your kid to college. I mean, this takes time. This is not a two-week thing. It's a huge decision. And oh, by the way, it's probably going to infuriate the Chinese. So you wonder what happens in a total retaliatory uh, efforts by them. All these things, are they're headwinds. It's not that I'm a hater of Apple. I don't really care one way or another, but the stock is too expensive. And I still think, and we've said this for a while, on Market Call, we've said it on, on the tape. We talk about it on Fast Money. I'm sure you talk about it on OK Computer. It's just too expensive. And you need Apple to sort of give up the ghost in order for this market to find a bottom. And it has not happened yet. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, you consider where the stock was trading a few months ago and where it is now. It's still well off of those lows. And you bring up a really good point. You know, when you think about Apple's market share in China of smartphones, they're like three or four. It kind of goes back and forth. There's a bunch of domestic Android-based OEMs that do very well there. And if you think about moving a bunch of those jobs and reorienting their supply chains outside of China, you have to think that has something to do with demand locally. And then also, when you think about what is the potential for ratcheting up of retaliatory actions. I mean, Chinese citizens have the potential to get really nationalistic about the choices that they make. So to me, this could be really, I mean, just the start of this. And and, and it takes you back, Guy, to the beginning of 2019. And we referenced this. It was like the second or third trading day of the year where Apple pre-announced after the stock was in a free fall in Q4 of 2018. And what was going on in Q4 of 2018? The Fed was raising interest rates. We had global growth concerns. And Apple finally, it was their first negative pre-announcement in almost 10 years. Now, the stock had already sold off 30%. It gapped lower and they were blaming China. And that was the low. That was it. Go back and look at the chart. At some point, if you want to bookend this, right, you could say that maybe in January of 2023, that maybe this kind of come to Jesus that they may have to have about this Chinese demand and manufacturing situation. Maybe that's the thing that causes it to kind of underperform going forward, you know, at least as far as the tech space is concerned. And then it puts pressure on those margins. The moment, and we've had Dan Benton on this podcast a couple times this year, the moment 
that margins start coming down for Apple is the moment that you want to get out of this stock or at least, you know, the overweight of it. So thoughts on the demand aspect, Guy, because we are clearly in an economic Cold War with China and that's not getting better anytime soon. It, it, you know, it's interesting. Margins have been declining. So, I mean, you've already seen that start to happen. Let's put it this way. Given everything that you've just stated over the last few minutes and given all my replies, Margins are not going to improve. I mean, we can argue whether or not they're going to get worse, but they're certainly not going to improve, number one. In terms of the demand picture, they're still selling a high-end device that in good times when interest rates are low and cash is free, nobody seems to care about. When the pendulum swings and the consumer is strapped and there's a global slowdown, people will start to say, do I really need that new device? And the short answer is probably not. And again, to your point about retaliation, I mean, there are a number of things that can happen on the back of this. There's so many narratives that are yet to be written in terms of Apple. And they didn't just wake up and decide they're going to move their supply chains out of China. I mean, my sense is they labored hard and long about those decisions, understanding the potential ramifications. So to think that all things are great here at Apple and you just own it and pray that the market goes higher, I think that's folly right now. And quickly to your point about what happened in 2018. One bit of that narrative that you didn't mention is the Fed pivoted in December of that year, in 2018, into 2019, and that set a bottom for stocks globally. I'm not convinced that's going to happen this time, but we'll see. Yeah, and here's another one. I mean, this is, I think, a good way to kind of extrapolate what we might see. We know that Apple has been supply constrained because of zero COVID in China, but this headline out of Tesla over the weekend is a Bloomberg story guy. It was talking about that Tesla's cutting production in the Shanghai factory by 20%, and that would only mean that demand is weakening. And when you think about it, we just talked about Apple's smartphone market share in China. I think it's really important to, to kind of like understand this that Tesla's market share in the US is about 50% of the electric vehicle market. In China, this year, they're less than 10%, okay? So there are massive domestic EV players in China. And if you wanna just kind of think about everything that we just said to Apple and apply that to Tesla from a manufacturing, but also a demand standpoint, I mean, Tesla could have a huge China problem. I, I just think that's really important to understand because there are players on the high end, the mid range and the low end in China that do not wanna see Tesla succeed. And if China has to start picking winners, which we we know that they do. You know, Absolutely. this could be a real problem for Tesla going forward. $177 stock as we sit here, traded down to 166 at its recent low. That stock had been more than cut in half from its all-time high. I mean, think about that in a year. Nobody really brings that up. The stock subsequently rallied. I think it actually got close to 200, and here we are. I think there's a problem here. Again, I'm not a hater. I'm just trying to sort of read the tea leaves, and it's a similar story. I mean, similar in some components, obviously, to Apple, not entirely you know, a very high-end device vehicle that you need consumers to pay up for. And if, again, if you're going to sort of have problems in China, if you're poking that dragon or poking that bear, as it were, there are ramifications on the other side of it. And I think, again, I don't know Elon Musk. I've never met him. I don't have a particular opinion one way or another, but I think he's bit off a bit more than he can chew. And if his focus is going to be 
predominantly on Twitter, something's got to give up, right? Something's got to suffer from it, and it's probably going to be Tesla. And we're seeing it right now, right before our very eyes in terms of the stock. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, I, I just think that also the ultimate hypocrisy of the situation with Elon Musk buying Twitter for $44 billion and saying that he's doing it. And listen, I know you guys are bored of it. I just think it's really important to understand that it's been our view. Guys, myself, Danny Moses is on the tape, is that Tesla shareholders have underwritten Elon Musk gambit with Twitter because he knows that he was overpaying by 20, 25, maybe even more, billions, billions, okay? And so when you think about him, he's saying that he's doing it for humanity because he loves it for the name of free speech, yet on the flip side of it, the thing that he has a massive interest in, he's a 15% shareholder within Tesla. When you think about how dependent Tesla is as a company on Chinese, a very authoritative regime where his Twitter platform is not allowed you know what I mean? So so to me, it's the ultimate hypocrisy. He has to chum up and no different than Tim Cook, you know, to President Xi and the communist regime over there. At some point, I think in 2023, and you've been saying this for years, okay, that these companies should be subject to all the kind of goofy rules in and around ESG because the social component of the manufacturing in these places and just the kind of disregard, I think, for human rights over there is something that sooner or later, it just has to be addressed here by U.S. investors and by U.S. consumers. People look past it for whatever reason, but I think they're starting to look a bit more close. Given the news we get out of China seemingly every day, given these videos that we're seeing, I think it's coming to the forefront. And I think the market is starting to understand that. And again, these things don't resolve themselves, Dan, overnight. And I'm not suggesting you're saying that at all. They take time. And we have, again, become a society, an investing community that's used to instant gratification, and it's just not happening now. And unfortunately, I think some of these situations are going to get worse before they get better. I just don't see how they resolve themselves. So what does it mean? I think it means pain for a lot of companies that have a huge exposure to the Chinese. And listen, that's McDonald's, by the way. That's Starbucks, by the way. We can rattle off the names, but on the top of that list is Apple, and to a certain extent, as you mentioned, Tesla as well. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to Current.com slash OK. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. All right, let's talk about Salesforce here really quickly because, again, you know, the company reported last week. It was disappointing. I mean, we're starting to see this. We've been talking about this for months Very and months Very disappointing, now. Yeah, actually. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. You can't sugarcoat it. I mean, it was just not particularly good. 
Yeah. So when you think about just kind of layoffs in general that we've seen across the tech landscape, I mean, when you have major companies like Meta and Amazon and and some of these tech companies laying off 10,000 at a clip workers, I mean, a lot of these companies use SaaS products, you know, sold by a company like Salesforce. It has been a roll up. And so I just think interestingly, in the last week or so, we've seen some major executive leaves. The co-CEO, former chairman of Twitter, Brett Taylor, has left the company kind of abruptly. Stuart Butterfield agreed to sell it in 2020 to Salesforce for nearly $28 billion. He was the CEO founder of that company, a great entrepreneur, probably a really good manager too, has just left the company. Another company they bought, I think MuleSoft, their CEO, just left. So something's going on there. Like to your point, the stock's down nearly 50% on the year. Again, they're seeing slowing enterprise demand for this thing. It almost feels like a purge. And let me be clear. I mean, I like Mark Benioff. I like his politics. I like the way he runs his business. And stuff. But this just seems like a really odd circumstance, especially as the stock's making new 52-week lows. And again, you and I are both in agreement that this might be the start of, of kind of the unwind of 10 years of some of these companies where investors just didn't give a crap about valuation based on growth. And I look at just so you know, guy, fiscal 2024 estimates for Salesforce, which would be this next fiscal year, and you're expected earnings growth of mid-teens and low-teens for revenue growth trading about 23 times. I just don't see that materializing in the environment or the economic environment that you and I both think we're going to be in. So I think investors right now are saying, okay, there's some senior executives who are losing confidence what's going on, and maybe investors haven't got the memo yet. Yeah, I think that's right. And I'm just looking at it, and to your point, you know, stock that was making an all-time high this time, effectively last year, north of $300. Here we are, more than cut in half. And you start to have to ask yourself, you know, what's the support? Like, what level should we be looking at? And you go back, and it's interesting. I mean, everything happened in the spring of 2020. And you go back and look at what the low for Salesforce, and we're gonna get a, we're gonna start to approach those levels, which you say it all the time. These stocks have effectively round tripped the COVID low, and we're getting there now. So the question is, what's the right valuation? Clearly, what we saw this time last year was incorrect. I think you brought it up a number of times, but you know, for a company that's still going to do north of $30 billion in revenues next year, probably closer to 33, with a market cap of what right now, Dan, about $135 billion or so? I mean, what's the right price to sales? And you're probably much more familiar with that than I am. But we're getting towards levels where I think even value investors can wrap their head around. But to your point about abrupt uh, resignations, I mean, the market's going to sort of sell first, ask questions later when they see something like that, especially given the fact this company is not falling on hard times, but is clearly experiencing the slowdown that a lot of these companies have. And again, they sell products that companies, and the first thing that these companies are going to start to look at are products that, that Salesforce sells. And that's just the nature of the beast. And as much as people want to think these are not cyclical companies, guess what? They're cyclical companies. Yeah. Well, again, to your point, I mean, there was like a little bit of fear in the start of 2020. And then I think a lot of investors and businesses alike realized there was a tremendous opportunity for work from home, school from home, everything from home. A lot of these products had a massive pull forward. So you're seeing the unwind of that. And also at a time where a lot of companies were staffing up and they had a lot of fiscal, I guess they had a lot of fiscal funny money to do so, right? When you think about what went on with PPP and, and all you're going to arm stuff. your employee base with products that they make. We're getting on the flip side of that mountain. And the stock has been trading in kind. The stock has been telling you that's been going on now for a year. 
Yeah. Well, I, I also say, you know, the analog to, to, to 20 years ago after the dot-com implosion is that markets and investors and valuations were not kind to roll-ups. You know, we saw it, we had Cisco and there was Oracle. There was a bunch of kind of roll-ups there. I think that you'd say the Salesforce right now is a probably similar sort of setup to some of those companies 20 years ago. So just as it overshot late last year, or it has the potential to kind of overshoot to the downside. Here's one though, Guy, I think this is really important, especially when we're talking about tech and pull forward. These headlines out of Europe as it relates to Facebook or Meta, as you like to refer to it as, targeting their ad model here. European Union privacy regulations have ruled Meta shouldn't require users to agree to personal ads. And then there's also a story out of Axios, and this is not going to come as a surprise, that digital ad growth expected to slow further in 2023. Meta had a massive rally. It sold off first after its Q3 earnings, 25% one day, made new 52-week lows, you know, basically took out its its pandemic lows, rallied 40%, filled in that entire gap. And then it's down about 5% on those sorts of headlines, but it's not just meta guy. It's, you know, anything that's kind of ad supported right now, I see Snap down six and a half percent. There's some of these other names are getting hit kind of hard here. Thoughts on this, because we see these sorts of moves, you know, Amazon after its Q2 earnings, remember it just kept on career lower. And then once the, the guidance was out, then it had a massive rally filled in that gap, but came back in here. So again, why do we talk about technical levels? Because a lot of investors are looking at them and they kind of work, especially if you can kind of piece it together with sentiment and some fundamental data kind of getting in front of some of these events like earnings or products announcements, that sort of well, thing. Well, to your point, Facebook traded down to $88 seemingly a few weeks ago and you know less than a month ago and you had that pretty significant rally. But that rally up to 123 or thereabouts is a blip if you look at it in terms of the context of the stock over the last year. I mean, it's literally just a blip to the upside. To your point, the problems at Facebook have not been solved by any stretch. Yeah, the stock has bounced and it's seemingly Mark Zuckerberg got the memo about trying to be more fiscally responsible. But the problems at Facebook are far deeper and it takes a lot longer time to sort them out. So Despite the fact that the stock has bounced, and I think people are giving you the all clear sign, I would suggest that nothing could be further from the truth. And in terms of Amazon, it's pretty much the same thing. I mean, Amazon went down, I think, 25% in a day, if I'm not mistaken. It might be a tad less than that, but that's pretty remarkable given where the stock had been and given how much it sold off into that. And it did bounce. And here we are back down to, I think, 88 bucks or so last I looked. None of this augurs particularly well, I guess, for the broader market. I mean, we look at tech specifically here, I understand that, but tech was such a huge component of the broader market for so long, and to think that it's not going to have an impact now, again, I think it's just foolish. All right, last thing before we get out of here, I'd love to get your take on, I mean, there's been so much going on in crypto and it feels like a bit of a uh -oh. sideshow, but I but I also feel like, Guy, and I think we've talked about this a lot on our podcast over the last couple of years. I mean, I, we always like put crypto in this bucket of that where you wanted to put all this spat crap and this kind of unprofitable tech stuff trading at 30, 40 times sale. I mean, that's kind of how we have been viewing this as if you want to call it an asset class that's kind of adjacent to equities. And, and if you will. And I think at its highs last year was maybe $3 trillion. And at the time we were kind of remarking that, well, that was Apple's market cap. So at the, the end of the day, it wasn't something that we ever thought was likely to be too systemic. Um, I think it's helped the negative sentiment within some of those areas within the tech equity landscape. But when you think about this now, you know, there's been some very, very prominent people who've all, all along, you know, been calling it BS here. A couple of those guys in Omaha and then Jamie Dimon. Let, let's 
talk about this. There's an article in Bloomberg this morning here. Jamie Dimon likened crypto tokens to pet rocks. Now, I think I've heard him say that frequently here. Is this how did you need these guys to do like some victory laps here for crypto to try to bottom? I know that you have said you think that crypto, specifically Bitcoin, probably finds a bottom at some point, and it could be from much lower levels when the Fed does, in fact, pivot, going from a very tight monetary policy to something that resembles what had been in place over the prior few years to its highs, where investors were just kind of pushing themselves out the risk curve, and Bitcoin seemed as good as anything, put your money in and look for kind of the crazy sort of returns to the upside. So let's dissect that for a second. The two old dudes in Nebraska, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, they've been steadfast the entire time. You know, when Bitcoin was 5000 they were saying pretty much what they're saying now when it was 60,000. They never really wavered. Price didn't get them to change their opinion. And now they're proven to be, I guess, to a certain extent, correct. In terms of Jamie Dimon, though, he was pretty negative about crypto originally. He seemingly got the memo some six months or so later when JP Morgan, I don't want to use the word embraced it, but acknowledged it in a more meaningful way for the bank. And now he's seemingly doing a 180 again. So he seems to be blowing hot and cold with price, I guess. That's just sort of my quick take on it. doesn't mean that he's wrong, but that's sort of my take. In terms of crypto, the asset class, what I find fascinating is, you know, the, le the last leg lower in Bitcoin obviously happened along with this FTX thing. And I guess it makes sense to a certain extent. But, you know, as you probably know a lot better than I, I mean, FTX is effectively an exchange, right? So why would a blow up of an exchange be an indictment of what the exchange trades? It's similar that if the CME were to have a problem, it does not an indictment on crude oil or any of the products that they trade, but that's seemingly what the market is saying. Um, but to your point, Bitcoin has been 17,000-ish for months. And one of the things I say about assets, securities, commodities, stocks, the market doesn't give you a long time to sell the top, nor does it give you a long time to buy the bottom. And 17,000 has been a bottom for quite some time. So almost by definition, it means there's another leg lower here. And again, I find it really interesting that with all the noise around the Fed possibly pivoting or pausing, Bitcoin has not been able to get off the mat. And I think that's problematic if you're bullish here in BTC. Yeah. And just to give Jamie, I mean, again, you know, we all reserve the right to change our minds on, on yeah, things no, in general. Absolutely. No, no, I, no, I, I'm, I'm just saying that. And, and, you know, he's been really consistent on a couple things over the last few years. He's been consistent on the lack of regulation on some of these like buy now, pay later or what, what deemed, deemed to be fintech, you know, sort of innovations that obviously he's talking his book because when Carvana and Upstart in a firm, these things had massive, okay, market caps, right? And they don't have any of the this sort of regulation that his bank does, which is a very big and complicated financial institution. And look at those three stocks. They're all down, guy, more than 90% from their all-time highs. Carvana is probably going to go bankrupt. Those other ones, who knows? You know what I mean? Let, let's see how long, if we have a consumer-led recession, if those things can stay in play. And then if you think about crypto and really what it was meant to do, and listen, you and I are in agreement. There's kind of some very interesting things and being developed, let's say on different blockchains, I would say specifically probably Ethereum in smart contracts. I don't really see the use case for Bitcoin. I never really have. We've been very consistent for two years on our podcast about that. Jamie, I think, has had the right direction of these things. And 
at some point, man, out of the ashes, something will rise from all of these models and there'll be something 20 years from now, the same way as pessimistic as people were in 01 and 02 about anything internet or e-commerce related, there were some amazing innovations that were before their time, right? And so again, the valuations didn't make sense, the sentiment in and around it, the competition. And so they were just kind of too early. So again, I just, you know, I had a conversation with a good friend of ours who's been a huge crypto skeptic the whole time because of what he does and where he sits. He has not been public about it, but I've heard about it from this individual for two years consistently. And we were at a dinner the other night with a couple of journalists. It was a really interesting conversation. And I said to him, listen, you were so good at the top. You were so good writing it down. I would say be a little bit more open-minded as we appear to be approaching a bottom. And that bottom can be a year or two. You know what I mean? If the analog is the post.com crash, but it makes no sense to press it to zero. Does that make sense to you, guy? No, absolutely not. At a certain point, you'd wave the victory lap. And, you know, if it's going to go lower, it's going to do it on its own. But you have to be smart enough to understand that you've got your thesis right and you're probably not going to buy the bottom. And you're talking about crawling from ashes. Of course, I think of the great Dave Edmonds song, Crawling from the Wreckage. <laughs> By the way, Dave Edmonds made one of the great super bands with a guy named Nick Lowe. It was called Rock Pile for your listeners. All out right, there, real Dan. quickly, because. You were not with me in doing some of our recording, which was yesterday. It was Monday. It was December 5th. You were down in D.C. for the weekend, and you were at the Kennedy Honors. And 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 you too, which is a band that I absolutely love. I fell in love with the Unforgettable Fire. And then when the Joshua Tree came out in 87, I was a 15-year-old lad. It was one of the first rock concerts I saw in the Carrier Dome in Syracuse. September It was my freshman year in high school, and it just changed me and the music in which I listened. And actually, it started my obsession with live music. So so yesterday, Bono, was it Bono or the entire U2? They were inducted uh, or to the Kennedy Honors. And my other love when it comes to music, Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, he did the induction. So I was there. It was amazing. It, quite an experience. George Clooney was honored. Gladys Knight. Oh, wow. um, Tia Leone, I think a director, Amy Grant, um, a Christian singer who's edgy as hell. And obviously you two, the entire band, I think they're the fourth band that's been inducted into history. I think it's 45 years now of the Kennedy Center or something like that. Eddie Vedder was the performer. I will tell you, Sean Penn was the person that did the induction. And Sean Penn got emotional when he talked about you two, the influence they've had and their social awareness and how relevant they've been for now over four decades. So it was really cool. And Eddie Vedder, I tell you what, you say it all the time and I mess with you, but he's one of the great front people in the history of rock and roll. I mean, he is really energetic. He's great. And it was a fantastic, it was long, but it was a fantastic evening. Well, I'm Jelly, and I really appreciate you joining us for OK Computer. This is kind of a fun little rundown. We kind of wanted to hit some of the biggest topics, names, themes going on in tech. And as far as I'm concerned, as it relates to the NASDAQ, if you're trying to see where it bottoms or figure out how it bottoms. You know, I still haven't found what I'm looking for as it relates Whoa, to that guy. I see what so you did there. You see what I did there. Thanks a lot for joining me on OK Computer, Guy Adami. If you want to see more of Guy Adami, you can find him nah, on CBC's Fast Money or every Friday drops in the podcast store, probably in this feed anyway, on the tape with myself and Danny Moses. And Guy and I do a market call live streaming Monday through Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find it at MRKT Call on the Twitter. Guy, thanks for being with us. 
It was fun. I actually sounded like I knew what I was talking about, which is <laughs> you remarkable. Did. You I, did. I, I'm scared of OK Computer because typically the people that come on are far smarter than I. But in retrospect, most people are. Yeah, fair enough. Well, you did it. You, you, you made a believer out of me. All right, I'll see you soon. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.